Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with YouTuber Jessica Kent. Thanks for coming on the show, Jessica. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we were chatting just a minute ago, and you have an incredible story that I've heard little bits and pieces of. And I'm really interested to hear the entire thing uh, and your entire journey up until now directly from you. So I want to jump right in and let's let's rewind. Take me back to where all of this started. Like, where does your relationship with addiction start? Yeah, so there's a lot of genetic components to addiction that I don't think a lot of people talk about very often. Mm-hmm. Um, alcoholism and addiction runs in my family. So there was that genetic component. Um, There's a lot of environmental factors. I grew up very, very poor in Section 8 housing, and I also have mental health. So that's the perfect storm for uh, for addiction, right? So I suffer from PTSD, insomnia, depression, and anxiety. So it's a lot. (laughs) And um, I was severely bullied all through school for my crossbite teeth, and I had a really short tomboy haircut. And um, at 12 years old, I finally met a friend, someone that was genuinely nice to me. And her and I kicked it out or kicked it off from detention is how we became friends. Um, and she invited me over to her house and we started drinking alcohol. And that was when my addiction started at 12. Mm. So I was like, wow, alcohol makes me not socially awkward and weird. It makes me happy and it Mm -hmm. makes me confident and comfortable in my skin. So I thought it was like the answer. I thought that was the key to everything. Um, very uh, quickly that progressed into a pill addiction. I was partying and drinking as much as I possibly could. And then I was jumped at 13 and my ribs were cracked. My nose was busted. My eye was all swollen and gross. I mean, I looked like a bad science experiment or something. I looked really rough. Wow. Um, I was prescribed Oxycontin at 13 Mm. because of all of that stuff. That's pretty hardcore to prescribe a 13 year old Oxycontin, Mm -hmm. but I guess they were pretty pretty loose with more loose than they are now for sure with that stuff back in the day. Right. I'm 31 now. So at 13, like things were just very, very different. Mm -hmm. I probably would have been fine with ibuprofen. I mean, come on. Yeah. So that same friend was like, why aren't you crushing these up? You should be snorting these. And I'm like, okay. Cause I was an infant. Um, and you know, I, because I was bullied so much and because I had depression and because we moved around from section eight housing to section eight housing, I grew up angry with a chip on my shoulder, you know, and I was a very violent, aggressive drinker and user and partier. And that progressed into full-blown heroin addiction at the age of 18 or so. 
And then I started using intravenously mm-hmm. and my addiction was very dark, but I protected it. Like it was my best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to tell me that I have a drug problem. Sure. I'm fine. You know, you people have a problem. You should go help those people over there. Not me. Don't attack me. I'm fine. Um, and that aggression stayed for a very long time. And in order to pay for my habit and in order to not be poor, I made the executive decision uh, to sell drugs. And in doing so, I thought I had unlocked this next level to life. Like I don't have to work a nine to five job and still struggle because Mm -hmm. everyone around me worked and they struggled and they complained about money and fought about money. And I didn't want to be that person. So I thought selling drugs was the answer. And, uh, just to fast forward there, it's not, <laughs> right. um, but I was arrested many times for all kinds of different things, underage drinking, getting in fights. I was kicked out of school. I, um, well, when I wasn't kicked out of school, I was living in in-school suspension in school. I mean, it was just a constant thing. Mm-hmm. So I was on pins probation through the school. That's person in need of supervision because I was drinking and getting in fights and acting insane. Uh, And then I was on youth probation and then adult probation and then parole. So I was in some form of supervision from about 13 or 14 to 28 years old. Wow. Wow. That's man, that is quite a journey. And and, gosh, so I I know we're going to dive a little bit, bit deeper in, I I do want to ask, you know, because the, the selling drugs was a big part of my story. And for me, you know, uh, it isn't my story, but a big part of the reason that I even mention it is because it kind of guided like the drugs I was using and it definitely propelled me into using uh, other things. I mean, for me, it was, you know, well, what do people like about cocaine? Like, I don't really get it, you know, I mean, you know, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm doing it. What was the relationship between your drug selling and, and drug use? I'm kind of curious. That is a really good question. Um, at first it was fine because mm-hmm. I was making money and I, um, first I would buy drugs mm-hmm. up front, cash up front. And then whatever I made is what I made, mm-hmm. whatever I used, I used, it wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I started getting, uh, different connects, um, more wealthy connects, if you will, people that were very willing to give me huge fronts, I started to get in trouble. Mm. Um, so it's not just about, oh, I just bought this on all up front. I'm fine. It's mine. I can do whatever I wanted to. I started working for other people and that became a problem. Mm. So I had to live a double life for, uh, for quite a while where my dealer, if he knew I was out of control and using, he would cut me off. Oh wow! And at one point he did. Um, so I tried to keep up this, this facade, you know, I'm not really using, I was the kind of person that would wear a long sleeve shirt in the summer. (laughs) You know, I would put more makeup on my arms than I did on my face to cover up my addiction. Mm -hmm. I tried so hard to be stable and on time and, uh, always correct with my money, but it got really bad because I was paying for my addiction, my boyfriend's addiction, a friend's addiction, all my bills, my friend's bills. And there was a lot of pressure on me as a teenager. Yeah. Um, 18, 19, 20. I mean, I was, I was a kid still basically, mm-hmm. you know, that's an adult, but I was very young. Right. And a lot of people looked to me to get them out of whatever situation they were in. Hmm. So uh, I racked up a pretty substantial debt. And in doing so I was kidnapped and pistol whipped 
because I owed like 30 grand, Jeez. you know, and then I realized like, oh fuck, like this is serious. Like mm. I'm not, I'm not playing drug dealer anymore. I'm full blown drug dealer and yeah. I'm, I'm going to get killed over this. Well, that dealer gave me a little bit of leeway in that he said, earn this money back and we're square. And I was able to do that in one weekend. You know, that was the old me. The old me would always come through with money. I had bands. <laughs> I had bands. I was fine. And to me, in my drug addicted mentality, I was like, as long as I have money, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. As long as I can pay my bills, I'm not really a drug addict. I'm not really this junkie that the other people are. I'm not like those people. I am fine because I'm yeah, rich. I get that. Yeah, I get that. I, I was having a conversation with uh, somebody yesterday talking about that same thing, you know, where when the money was around and, and for me, you know, my, my addiction kind of ended at the, the pills, the, the pain pills. But, you know, when I had a lot of pills around, I was sitting there judging all these people that were going to rehab, probably overdosing. They just weren't telling me about it, you know, and, and talking shit about all these people where little did I know I was using way more than any of them. Um, but because I had, you know, some, some money in my pocket and because, you know, I could, I could continue this habit, it didn't seem unmanageable. Mm -hmm. And little did I know it was just, I mean, the way I describe it for me, like I went from the dope man to the dope fiend and it seemed like an overnight thing almost. Um, so where did things start to, well, it things like, it sounds like things started to take a turn when you got kidnapped. Uh, where, where do they, what, what's kind of the next steps in, in these progression, uh, in this progression, because you end up in prison at some point, right? So how does that end up happening? Yeah. So my story is really layered and confusing, but I caught sure. my first felony at 17 for criminal sales of a controlled substance. I sold some pills to a kid that did overdose. Oh, wow. He did not pass away. And that was hmm. like, it Thank saved God. both of our lives, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. he could have died. I could have been given life in prison. Um, so being, being a felon is not anything that I am unfamiliar with. I've been a felon since I was 17. Um, but selling drugs was just thought, how do I explain this? Selling drugs was my identity. It's who I thought I was, mm -hmm. you know, it's what I brought to the table. It's, it was my hustle. You know, I'm an entrepreneur and I was very, I was very ignorant to my behavior and how dangerous it was. Mm. Um, so eventually I was in upstate New York when I was selling heroin and using heroin. And then um, a lot of things happened. There was a lot of heat. I felt that runners of mine felt that we knew that, you know, if we don't stop or we, we don't get out of this area, we're going to go to prison again. Um, so everyone that I was working with was also a felon. And my boyfriend at the time had robbed a store and that was it. That was my, that was my breaking point. I'm like, you just put so much unnecessary attention on us. I have to go. I have to run. Well, he gets arrested and I made it out. Of course, they're going to arrest me because I'm dating him. Mm -hmm. So I made it out of New York by the skin of my teeth, um, barely with them chasing me. And I had to get into a cab, couldn't pay money for that cab because at this point I'm broke, I'm struggling, I'm in debt again with my dealer. I'm a complete fiend for, for heroin and I have track marks everywhere, I'm a mess. But I was able to run from uh, New York State Police, also the cabbie that I could not pay, I had to run from him and I ended up on a magazine crew, which I was familiar with. I would go on the run, join this magazine crew. 
We'd sell magazine subscriptions door to door and travel the country. So that was the perfect hiding place for me on the run. Hmm. So I went back to them, detoxed in Virginia. And now I'm selling magazines, traveling the country door to door. Well, I subsequently hated that because I had to work much harder than I'm used to, you know, Mm. drugs kind of sell themselves. Magazine subscriptions do not. Yeah. So, um, a friend of mine, an old runner of mine was living in Arkansas. He calls me and says, I'm the man I'm balling. I'm selling meth and everything's great. And I had never seen meth before in my life. Then the very next day he called me and he sounded crazy, like out of his mind. Mm. And at this point I was about two months sober from heroin. So I felt so strong and I felt like I could go help him. I could help him get sober. I'm doing great. I'm thriving. I got a little bit of money now and I'm not, I'm doing it the right way. So I go to Arkansas and he's on meth in this condemned trailer. And I'm thinking to myself, like, where did you how, how did you get here, dude? Like you were my top runner. You were making thousands of dollars and you're in this condemned trailer, but fuck it. I mean, at least it has air conditioning because the South is really hot. Yeah. So I tried to get him sober, but within a couple of weeks I had bought meth because he doesn't want to get sober. He doesn't want to listen to me. He's not going to listen to somebody that was using drugs. Yeah. So now I'm using meth and then I start selling meth and I'm right back into the same thing that I was doing. I got one connect and then another and then another. And before I knew it, I was selling meth for the cartel and about eight months into my journey in Arkansas, I got arrested again. So wow. Wow. It's a crazy story. That is crazy. Yeah. And I just want to ask, so you said that you had gotten sober from heroin. Was that, was that basically just like you just, were managed to detox and stop somehow for a while did like did you were you working a recovery program of some kind like what did that look like it's a great question yeah um i got sober from heroin 12 15 times before then wow i thought if i could stop using Mm -hmm. for a few weeks or a month then Mm -hmm. i had everything under control and i was fine man and i did that it's so scary Mm -hmm. i did that over and over again not realizing that my tolerance is now zero and going back to it was huge risk yeah um i never worked a 12-step program in my life Mm -hmm. i never I never listened to the people at drug and alcohol. Now I was court ordered to go to all of those things. Okay. I assume you said you were under supervision. So like you had an introduction to something, some kind of recovery, something at some point. Right. So I had to go to meetings. I had to go to drug and alcohol counseling, therapy sessions, things like that. Mm -hmm. I was very resistant to that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I didn't listen to them whatsoever. So in Arkansas, when I was sober from heroin, I thought I was okay, but the reality of it was I didn't understand the core problem and that was my mental health. I obviously addiction is a serious problem, but when we treat addiction, we end up treating everything else. We treat mental health and all the things that led us there, but I didn't understand that. I thought as long as I put a substance down, I was okay because that is a very common misconception in addiction. Yeah. Just stop there. using, you're going to be fine. If yeah. you just stop getting high, like, mm-hmm. Bro, uh, my brain is broken and I don't make dopamine. Well, yeah. And and like you said, you know, I think for such a long time, me being okay meant having money in my pocket. And it's like, hey, by the way, when you stop getting high all the time and pawning all your stuff, you'll probably have some money in your pocket. But like you said, that doesn't mean that that everything just gets fixed, right? And especially not not mental health. So uh so you, you, yeah, 
you, you, you weren't, you weren't following through with any of the suggestions or anything that you were getting. I get it. No, I, I was so determined to do everything my way. And mm-hmm. for over a decade that got me in a shit ton of trouble. Hmm. So I was very unwilling to hear anyone else tell me how I need to fix my life. Hmm. So I eventually got addicted to meth because it made me feel great. And I had no, no withdrawal. You know, my whole life had been a, let's not be sick today scenario. Hmm. What can I do to not be sick? You know? Um, And that was so painful. And I was so miserable in, in my life. I started out selling drugs because I'm going to be the man. I'm going to make a bunch of money and be on top of the world. That very quickly made me depressed and resentful and bitter. And everyone, you know, everyone where I'm from is very, very poor. So they were relying on me and I hated myself. Then I get sober and I go to Arkansas and I start using and selling meth. And at the end, once again, I'm miserable and I hate myself. You know, it got so bad where I was up for days and days and I wasn't eating. I wasn't drinking, wasn't sleeping. And I almost took my own life. I almost shot myself. Wow. And I was that depressed, you know, I just didn't understand sobriety, how to stay sober, how to do long-term recovery. None of that was in my vocabulary. I didn't even firmly understand my own mental health at the time. And that was at 23 ish or so, you know, so at 23, I still didn't understand me. Um, Why is Jessica so sad? Where did this come from? You know, um, how can you stay sober long-term? So um, I got arrested again and I got arrested not alone this time. I got arrested pregnant and I was about three weeks pregnant and I had no idea. Oh, so wow. I found out in jail. Wow. So to me, if getting sober meant I have to love myself, I'm not getting sober, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but I got sober and I fell in love with my daughter and she gave me a purpose and a reason to fight for sobriety. Because if I have to fight for Jessica, who gives a shit about Jessica? Yeah. I didn't, you know, so fighting to be her mom is what has kept me sober and kept me grounded. But in order to get that, I had to go to prison, have a baby in prison that gave me PTSD. And it was a very long road to get to where I am today. Wow. That's incredible. And yeah, I mean, I I can only imagine what all of that felt like. Um, So I want to ask, and I know, you know, just from looking at your YouTube videos, kind of nothing is, is off limits, so to speak. So you, you, uh, you have your daughter in prison and what actually happens to your daughter when you're in prison? So, um, I basically had nine months to prepare for what would happen once I gave birth. And because of that, I thought I was going to be completely fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I am mentally strong. I can handle almost anything. I've been through a lot. I'm going to be okay. Is what I continue to tell myself for nine months. Okay. Um, I was sentenced to five years with 15 suspended in Arkansas. And I knew, I knew that it was going to be a a very difficult situation for me. Um, on June 12th, 2012 at 4am, I went into labor and I was in complete denial that we're having a baby today because I know that it's going to be so hard. I'm like, I can't have a baby. And everyone else around me is like, girl, you're nine months pregnant. You're big as a house. You're in labor. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not in labor. I'm not just don't tell a CEO. Don't tell anyone. Um, and just to back up a little bit, I spent my entire pregnancy in a jail cell and then a prison dorm. I mean, my back was always hurting. I had to fight for three months just to get prenatal vitamins. 
I had people around me that either knew me from the street in Arkansas or, and did not like me or people that did know me and had my back. So it was a very weird, tense vibe for most yeah. of my time. Yeah. Um, I was always worried about protecting my unborn child and it was just a very stressful time in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I go into labor at 4am and the correctional officers decided to wait until shift change to take me to the hospital. Now I am freaked the F out because I've never had a baby before. I don't know how much time I have. I just know that I'm in so much pain. I can't stand it. And I just want to scream, but I'm trying so hard not to scream because COs can be very mean. So I didn't want to be told, shut up inmate while I'm having a baby. So I'm right. just trying, I'm sitting in the infirmary on, in this wheelchair with a puppy pad underneath me because my water could break and I was spotting and I'm holding onto this chair and every contraction I get just feels like my bones are breaking. And I'm like grinding my teeth and like grinding my teeth so I don't scream. Mm -hmm. And I went through that for hours. They didn't take me to the hospital until after shift change at 7 a.m. So it was about 8 a.m. by the time they finally called the ambulance. And I had my daughter and then I was chained to the bed because I am an inmate, you know? So I just gave birth to my first baby. She's beautiful. She's healthy, but I'm chained to a bed. And that image stayed with me. I mean, it'll stay with me forever, but that image was so sad. I'm holding this baby and I see the leg chains and I can't even get out of bed because the COs would have to unchain me. They refused uh, the doctor's orders to let me get up and walk around. And it's very important. You walk around after you have a baby that helps with um, rehabilitation and getting, getting okay after that. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't let me go to the bathroom when I had to go to the bathroom. It was just a traumatic filled event. Um, so two days after she was born, uh, the correctional officers came in and said, Kent, it's time. And I was holding onto this baby bassinet, looking at her crying, telling her, I will be back for you. They grabbed me by the shoulders, throw me down in the wheelchair, shackle me up really quick and wheel me out of that room. And I left my daughter in the hospital room by herself and foster care came and picked her up. And I didn't know where she went. I didn't know. Um, for months, what she looked like, if she was okay, uh, who the foster family is, who has her, how she's doing. I knew nothing. And um, when I first got back to the prison, I was so traumatized from that experience that I couldn't speak. Um, they kept me in the, in the infirmary. And later I realized that this is PTSD. So a lot of moments, the first couple of weeks after giving birth are just like flashes, if that makes sense. Like, I don't remember every single thing. I just remember a couple of people talking to me here and there. Mm -hmm. um, so I was extremely depressed. I had postpartum depression and PTSD, and I stayed in the infirmary for a couple of weeks before I decided to get the fuck out of that bed. It was just for some reason, something came over me and I said to myself, if you don't get out of this bed, you're never going to see her again get out of this bed, work classes, get your good time, make sure that you can get out and fight for her. So yeah. I did just that. I took every class I possibly could. And when I got out, I worked a DHS case. And after one year of working a very intense uh, case, I got full custody of her and I've had wow. her ever since. Wow. Gosh, I, I'm just thinking about this because uh, about three months ago, my wife and I had a daughter and, you know, I was there, of course, when my wife get, well, I shouldn't say, of course, because, you know, it's crazy right now. There's a lot of people that, uh, the, the spouse or partner is not able to, you know, be in the room during, during COVID, but thankfully I was, 
And I'm just thinking about everything she went through, much less if that whole process was going on shackled with prison guards around, um, you know, the time leading up to that during pregnant pregnancy, just uncomfortable bed, food, just the craziness with, you know, all these people around you that, you know, a lot of them don't like you. That's just, uh, that's nuts. So I can only imagine now you, you said that you start taking classes and stuff like that. Um, and I know that you did end up getting uh, a bachelor's degree eventually in uh, criminal program support services, which I'm guessing now, were you working on that while you were in prison? That was afterwards. Okay. Afterwards, so, yeah. Okay. So um, now I did want to ask, like when you're in prison, um, are you starting to address some of these mental health issues and some of this recovery stuff? Like, what does all that look like? So in prison, you do have access to a psychiatrist, um, mental health team, people, I'm not well-versed on it because it's not easy to get in to see them. You have to fill out a kite, which is a inmate letter to go to medical or mental health. Mm. Um, I did try to go to mental health and they told me to write my feelings down on a piece of paper. And that was it. Wow. That was the only resource they gave me. Um, Mm. So I, I remember being very, very angry with the prison system and wanting to fight for change when I got out. Um, but during that, I studied mental health by myself. I studied psychology. I studied addiction. I studied um, abnormal psychology, which I, I really like. Uh, that kind of focuses on murders, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Yeah. Um, I started to just study all of that on my own. How am I going to be a mother that also has mental health issues? How am I going to be a mother that is also a drug addict? What does that look like? Um, so I read every book I possibly could. I asked family members to send me books um, from, from the free world. And I just kind of figured out day by day on my own how to be healthy and how to be a mom. Um, now we did have parenting classes and that literally was the most depressing class I've ever been to because women are crying and they miss their kids. And I'm like, can, can we just, I'm sorry, can we pause? And can you tell me how to change a diaper though? Because I don't even know how to change a diaper. Like, can someone please give me some motherly advice? Um, so I had to read parenting books (laughs) by myself in my cell or on my rack, depending on where I was placed in the prison. And, um, when I got out of prison is when I started to put myself through college to earn a bachelor's degree. Wow. Wow. Well, it sounds like you, you did what you could to use your time wisely in there for sure. But so I I did want to ask a criminal program support services or the the criminal uh, program support services, I'm I'm guessing that really enables you to help people that have been in prison like yourself come out and live successful lives to a degree, right? So I'm hoping to work in a prison eventually okay, um, or, you know, teach a reentry class or Mm -hmm. work in rehab or literally anywhere that'll take me. Who knows what 2021 is going to bring. Okay. Um, But for now, um, for now, I'm just on YouTube and I have a podcast and I'm writing an autobiography. So I don't technically use my degree in the way that I thought I would. Right. Um, Yet. 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 Right. But three years into that degree is when I started YouTube. And, um, I never in a million years thought that my channel would be what it is today. I just thought I'd make a few videos about addiction. And then if people found them, cool, 
but they're like there. And I, I never thought I'd be a YouTuber, never thought I'd be a podcaster. I never thought that it would turn into this little empire. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and you have a huge following on YouTube. Why did you decide to start this channel? Like, why did you start making videos in the first place? It's a really good question. Um, I'm crazy. <laughs> no, um, I <laughs> Join started the club. Join the club. Yeah, you have to be just a little bit crazy to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but I started recording videos for a prison reentry class, mm. which I was so grateful for. Um, but I got fired from my volunteer job on my day off uh, because the teacher decided to quit and he no longer did that program. And the new teacher didn't want to share videos from a former inmate. Uh, oh, so wow. you can teach the class however you want to teach the class. But I was let go from my free job. Yeah. And I decided like, wait, I have a lot more to say. Like, I'm not done. I'm not done talking yet. Um, so I uploaded my first video, which was titled, I think it was titled Heroin, My Road to Recovery. And that was going to be a seven part series. And then that was it. And now 300 videos later. Wow. <laughs> so it just, it blew up and it just kept going. And I realized my story is way, way too complex to share in seven videos. And mm -hmm. that was a really dumb idea. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, you know, and like I said, I've watched quite a few of your videos and they, they range. I mean, they talk about addiction. They talk about your time in prison and, and just some of the insights there that people I'm sure ask about and want to know about. And, you know, I'm curious about, uh, you know, they, they talk about all kinds of things. Who, who do you feel like you're targeting when you're making these? Like, who are you mainly talking to? I guess is, is my question. Like who is my audience? Yeah. Who's your audience? Uh, fellow crazy people like myself. <laughs> crazy. Okay. Um, no. Fair so enough. my, my audience, either they have somebody that they know that mm -hmm. is in prison because you'd be hard pressed to find somebody in America that doesn't have some experience with the prison system or mm -hmm. addiction. So either they have been in active addiction or they've been in prison or they have a family member or a friend going through something similar. Mm. So I've tried to find really creative ways to talk about prison reform. So I'll make a prison pizza, but we're going to also talk about prison reform and prison culture. And, you know, I just want to have fun with it, but also spread awareness on the fact that inmates are treated like subhuman in our country. They're mm -hmm. given food that is marked on the label, not for human consumption, wow. you know, and it's just mind blowing. So maybe you're going to click on one of my videos that says how to make a prison cheesecake, but you're also going to get some facts sprinkled in there. Yeah. I, I saw quite a few, uh, prison recipe and, and cooking videos that I thought were, thought were pretty interesting. You know, I, I would have to guess that you got into this kind of like you were just alluding to, to make some changes and and like you said bring awareness if you had and, and look I'll, I'll just number one uh thank you for for serving the time that uh i didn't end up by the grace of god having to serve because you know i, I was one of, and this was a real problem for me like i there weren't any consequences for me for for a long time and i would say for the most part like the extent of my uh you know time being locked up was literally a matter of hours. Uh, and then I was bailed out. And I was one of these people that was in the back of the cop car so many times, manipulated my way out of it. Uh, probably craziest thing, run in with Secret Service where they thought I was counterfeiting money, had oh, to take wow. a lie detector test, talked my way out of that. Yeah, they like tried to get me to wear a wire and, and all this crazy stuff, which thankfully just 
faded away. I mean, yeah, it's like it's like a movie, right? I mean, even you know, with the stuff I'm you've gone through, I'm sure just some of it seems just not real. But my point is, a lot of this stuff is I, I just don't have any experience with, um, and I don't know about. So I think it's great that you're you know you are bringing awareness to it. If you had the ability to make some changes to prison reform or even prison reform as it directly relates to uh, addiction, what would some of the changes that you make be? Like, what would some of those changes actually look like? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. So first of all, all of it, Yeah. <laughs> all of that, mm-hmm. um, I, would, I would change the entire system. But the first thing that we need to do is decriminalize drugs. Mm. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like there's going to be a cocaine store. I right, just right. mean that people that are caught with small possessions of, of substances an assessment is done and then they can go to treatment, mm. not prison. You know, prison is never going to treat. Well, I don't want to say never I'll say that again. Prison does not treat drug addiction. Prison creates a barrier between the addict and society. So when mm. you label someone as a felon and then they get out, they're going to have so many more obstacles than they would if they were not a felon, getting employment, getting a place to rent, things like that. You know, a lot of States won't even let you be a volunteer firefighter, I mean, for the love of God, what, yeah. what sense does that make? No. Um, so that would be the first thing. And the second thing, if we are now incarcerating 50% less of the prison population, because that is what drug, that's what nonviolent drug offenses are that make up 50% of the inmate population. So if we're now scaling that back by 50%, we have more money and more resources to rehabilitate the people that are there. Now, technically speaking, I am a violent offender because I had a gun. So Mm. I didn't use it on anybody. So none of this would have applied to me. I deserved prison, went to prison. I would have still gone to prison if this was in effect when I was getting arrested. Um, But we need to focus on rehabilitation. We need to focus on job training and job placement. Re-entry in prison is thought to be like the last 30 or 60 days of your prison sentence. And that's wrong. So we need to think of re-entry from day one. Mm -hmm. How are you going to get on your feet? Because most inmates have a release date. So if we have a job training and job placement program, then we're training them in prison, releasing them with a job. I mean, that will will curb recidivism so much. I have paid my parole fees with drug money before, and that is so flawed. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't think a lot of people understand how costly it is to uh, the inmate once they get out. So we have court fines, restitution, parole fees. You have to pay to be on parole fines, all of that. So if we can hire felons, I think that would be a huge first step. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, and and again, there are so many things like I I was watching something the other day, I thought it was pretty interesting. And it was exactly what you're talking about. You know, this was a a good program uh, from what I could tell where they were really preparing inmates to go into the real world. And what it actually was it was a virtual reality thing. They would put on a headset and it was like, cause some of these guys hadn't been out in the real world and, and, and women as well hadn't been out in the real world in years. And it was like, how to use a cell phone, how to use an ATM, how to wash your clothes. You know, I mean, just all this uh, really basic stuff that, that I, I certainly hadn't uh, thought about, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, a road to, employment and and giving these people uh, a real shot at 
not just a life for themselves, but I think what a lot of people don't think about is like, this can be a, a productive member of society. Right. And, and I don't think people are thinking about this as like um, a whole, and, and I'll say, you know, you mentioned the decriminalization of, of drugs. I think even my thinking over the years has changed on that. I think um, a lot of people, even in recovery still um, maybe look at that as a bad idea but let's be real. If I want to go use drugs, I'm going to find it either way. And if I have a real issue, then, then I need to be able to find some help. Right. I mean, I think it, it seems logical. The, 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 it's very clear. People admit now the people that even started the war on drugs, this did not work. Right. Like punishing all these people, locking them away forever for a dime bag of weed, uh, bad idea. Right. So I think honestly, the people that are like, oh my God, we can't decriminalize drugs. Mm -hmm. I think they are not educated on what that actually means. What it means. Okay. Um, you know, so it, like I said, it doesn't mean there's going to be a cocaine store, but drug dealers are still going to go to prison. And mm -hmm. I feel like that is fair. I feel like that's a good place to start. Dealers punished prison, but with rehabilitation because maybe they're an addict also. Okay. People that have a small amount of drugs, um, should not ever go into the prison system. Now, having done time, I can tell you right now, there are drugs in prison. Right. It was yeah. very difficult to not drink hooch, to not use a substance in prison. Hmm. Um, can I have a very expensive habit? Mm, it depends on the facility. Uh, it depends on where I'm at. Could I use the same amount on the street as in prison? Probably not. Can I get drugs? Absolutely. And it's not that difficult. So if there are drugs in prison, there's going to be drugs in our society, That's but how we treat them is so important. A drug addiction is wiping out our generation. It is a health crisis and we need to start treating it as such. Instead of telling a drug addict who is probably suffering from mental health issues, you need to go to prison because you're a freaking criminal and a felon. Mm -hmm. Why don't we start treating them like a human being that just needs help? And why don't we treat their mental health and let them have resources and, you know, employment and all of that. So I think incredible things are, can be done when we start treating human beings as human beings and not as inmates who are beneath us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. And yeah, you can absolutely find drugs in, in prison. Um, there's, there's no question about that. I, I did want to ask, you know, you, you talked about all this work that you started doing in, in prison and I'm just curious, um, you know, what your recovery uh, for you looks like today? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't work a 12-step program. I am not on medically assisted treatment. I don't do any of that. While I advocate for that, sure. um, every path is different. You know, yeah. So my recovery just looks like mental health and self-care. Um, I always had to get sober white knuckling it. Mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. dangerous and not okay. And I wish I had different resources. Um, but once I got out of prison and I had a little over uh, two and a half years sober the last time, I realized how strong I was and I realized that I could do it. And I was just very, very determined to stay sober for my daughter, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I built a, a group around me that is so supportive. So there are days where I am so depressed. I can't film. I can't work. I just need to relax or make cupcakes. That's what I do when I'm really sad. Um, me and my daughters make cupcakes and I'm very, very aware that I'm going to struggle with my mental health for the rest of my life. Um, but my, my recovery just looks like, um, 
just being strong-willed, but knowing that I have an amazing support team to reach out to when and if I need them, which I have needed them in the past. Um, so mental health, as long as my mental health is okay, I'm okay. Hmm. So I know that doesn't sound like a, like a plan of recovery, but I kind of just winged it until now, you know, um, I didn't have a plan when I got out of prison. I didn't have anyone to lean on. All I had was myself and a plan of action. And that was to get my daughter, which is a very long, difficult process. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I had to get hair follicle drug testing and all kinds of stuff. Um, and once I got her back, I kind of had it like an identity crisis. You know, I was like, well, what's up kid (laughs) now? Now what do we do? You know, because I don't even know how to make spaghetti, you know, and now I have this beautiful toddler who, you know, just challenged me and I didn't understand, you know, even how to be a mom, but I learned slowly. Um, my fiance and I, we were blessed with another child. So we have two daughters now and they are just such a blessing and they keep me grounded and humble and tired, but in the best possible way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to understand the tired part a little bit more. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the thing is, is, uh, and I, and I've shared this a few times on the show from a, a personal perspective, a big part of what I get out of this show and what I wanted to get out of doing this show is learning more about what other people are, are doing. Um, and for me, although, you know, I am in a 12 step program, I really, my thinking on all this has changed a lot. Um, meaning that, you know, in the beginning, I, I truly thought like, this is the only way to do this, you know, there, there, this is it. And, and it is what's worked for me. Um, but I think even people in a 12 step program, they do different things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I hear you say, um, you know, like, we'll hear people say, well, you have to do this for yourself. But when I hear you say, you know, the biggest catalyst for me really wanting to do this was my daughter, like that makes sense to me. And who am I to say, no, that's wrong. You know, Um, because I think that it sounds like that's what pushed you to want to do it for yourself. And that makes sense to me. I think one of the big things that you mentioned that I see um, you know, that most people have in common, no matter what they're doing for the recovery is they have a, a strong team around them. Right. And, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think going back to, you know, what you pointed out is one of the biggest problems with locking people up that, that have, you know, addiction issues is that you're, you're isolating them. And we hear so much now about how that is one of the biggest problems with all this, right? The, the opposite of addiction is connection, as it was said. Um, so I, I, you know, that makes a ton of sense to me. But I think, you know, who am I to say um, that what someone else is doing is wrong? If they're they're sober, they're happy, they're living a life that they're loving, right? Um, I th- that makes sense to me. You know, I I love that I get to talk to people that have such different journeys than I have. Mm-hmm. So I've met people that are in long-term recovery from heroin and they use THC. 
Um, I've met people that are in long-term recovery with uh, methamphetamine, but they treated their ADHD, which was the root cause of that meth addiction, right? And they're on medication for that. Uh, medically assisted treatment, 12-step programs, microdosing with psychedelics. There's so many different resources. Um, 12 step, what's the other smart recovery, which smart is not, recovery, yeah. yeah, which is not kind of the same as 12 steps, but there's a lot of different things that you can do. Um, I know that people tell me all the time that they use my videos as a 12 step meeting. Cause they feel that support in my, in my comment section, it doesn't matter as long as you're healthy and you're thriving and you're living a good life. You know, I used to think that long-term medically assisted treatment was probably a bad idea and that mm -hmm. you should get off of it after X amount of years, but yeah. people are dying and who the hell am I to judge what keeps you alive? Mm -hmm. You know? So I have very openly, um, retracted previous statements about that because as long as you're alive, as long as you're okay and you're rebuilding your life, then I'm so happy for you. You know, I, I am not part of a program. I'm just me. And, um, I'm not closed off to it. Alan on meetings actually helped me a lot when I was three or four years into sobriety, because I was telling my loved one, uh, that struggles, I'm like, just freaking stopped us using drugs, bro. Just get sober. Like, what's your problem? Um, his problem is that he, is addicted to drugs and you're being insensitive. So I went to Alan on meetings and they helped me understand that I am not in control of that. And, you know, he's going to get sober when, when he is ready. So even in my nine years of sobriety, I've learned so much, hmm. changed my opinion so many times on what can and cannot work. And, um, hopefully with an open mind, I'm going to keep changing that, you know, I'm sure there are more pathways to sobriety that we don't know about yet that we will eventually learn about. So we all have different brain chemistry. We all went to a substance for a different reason. So what, why does people, why do people think that one pathway is going to be the only way to sobriety when we all have complete different brain chemistry? Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask if there's maybe one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation, whether it's someone that's you know, trying to get sober, new to sobriety, that's just struggling, having a tough time. So people new to sobriety, oh gosh, if I could tell old me anything, it would be to keep fighting and hold on. I think when I was first in recovery, I just didn't feel good. I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel sad. I just felt so meh because my brain was repairing. So it mm. takes time for your neurotransmitters to repair. It takes time to feel comfortable in your own skin. So we can't think of addiction as instant pudding. You have to cook that. You have to be patient, you know, and give yourself that time, give yourself um, more credit. I think uh, I got very frustrated with myself because I was craving a substance and I wanted that old lifestyle back and I didn't know who I was. And I just felt like complete shit. I mean, I, I really didn't feel good. Even once the physical symptoms stopped, the psychological ones last a long time. So give yourself credit, give yourself time, be patient and know that you are so much stronger than you realize. Mm, I love that. That's great advice. Well, be sure to check out Jessica's videos on her YouTube channel. Thanks again for coming on the show, Jessica. Yeah, thank you for having me. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at RC 
vrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.